0: Good evening, and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy. If history were to be conceived as a competition between the senses, then the eyes would certainly have it. More and more of what contemporary people know, and more and more of what they do, involves seeing. Radio programs that were once made by cutting magnetic tape with a razor blade now are produced by manipulating waveforms on a screen. Numerous other occupations have been restructured in the same way. The television, the Internet, the video game, the myriad of scanners and simulators all give precedence to the eye and turn the screen into our primary access to the world. How this happened is our theme tonight on ideas, as Ivan Illich presents a brief history of seeing. The program is part three of David Cayley's series on the corruption of Christianity. In previous programs, Illich has argued that our contemporary world can be understood only as a distortion of Christianity. In this episode, he examines the way in which the sense of sight has changed under the influence of the Christian claim that Jesus was the image of God. The Corruption of Christianity, Part 3, by David Cayley.
1: During much of the last 20 years, Ivan Illich has been preoccupied with what he calls body history, a history not of what people did or thought or said, but of what they physically experienced. The body appears at first glance as a natural fact, something on the side of nature rather than history its experiences relatively unchanging over time. But during the last generation, Illich and many other historians have shown that this is not true. The body exists in context, and each historical era embodies its experiences differently. Television, jet travel, organ transplants, the mapping of the genome, these contemporary experiences are not just things that happen to an unchanging body. They shape our deepest imaginings of what we are. People in the past undoubtedly had noses, skin, and eyes, but what they smelled and touched and saw was very different from what we smell and touch and see today. In this program, Ivan considers the history of one bodily sense, seeing, in relation to his theme in this series, the modern as a distortion of Christian faith. Our world, he believes, is now so captivated by created appearances, the apparitions that beckon from movies and magazines, billboards and video screens, that the represented threatens to eclipse the real. But before this triumph of the image could occur, he says, an old hesitancy and caution in front of images had to be overcome. And what made this overcoming possible, in his view, was the validation of the image within Christianity. We discussed what he calls the history of the gaze while I was his guest at the village on the outskirts of the Mexican city of Cuernavaca, where he lives during part of each year. He'll come in a moment to what Christianity has to do with the history of the senses, but he began by telling me how he took up the subject.
2: During four years, the, early, the first four years of the 90s, I focused my teaching and my reading on the history of the senses. By doing so, I took advantage of the fool's freedom which my renunciation to any formal teaching position gives me. That when I'm invited as a guest professor, I can really choose to teach what I want to teach, neither in a subject, or a field, or a discipline, or a method which is imposed to me by my hosts. How did I get to this? Why did I want to understand hearing, seeing, smelling, touching, walking, feeling, by looking at them from the past, that is, trying somehow to become capable of understanding what a person formerly meant when he said, I heard. I wanted to do this because I somehow had to explain how the senses can be satisfied in subsistence cultures with practically no money circulation, very little marketed objects appearing in their lives. I then realized that in order to understand the past, in its reality, I had to get into body history. And in order to zero in on something, on a bodily, a physical, a sensual feature of everyday life which today is not only understood but felt differently from the past, I focused on the history of the gaze. And since I wanted to get clearer to understand what body is, it so happened that by focusing on the history of the gaze, which is, or at least was, a bodily act of intercourse with the objects of my gaze, of union, not of fusion, but of union remaining the two of us, of a rose and I, distinct. I found a particularly propitious way of reflecting on the disembodiment that is characteristic, in my opinion, for
1: more modern times. This disembodiment is the sad climax of Illich's tale, and we'll return to it at the end of the hour. But first it's necessary to understand how Illich connects the history of the gaze to our present theme, the corruption of Christianity. The key, he says, lies in the Gospel of John, where it is said, The Word became flesh and lived among us, and we saw his glory, the glory that he has from the Father as his only Son. The heart of the New Testament message is that the
2: infinitely good, wise, powerful, all these words are do, do not reach him, that He whose name the Jews wouldn't pronounce, that Allah, now let me say God, that God did not become only words in the prophets, but flesh in the womb of a little girl, that therefore the flesh which John, the evangelist, the tears in his eyes, remembers that he touched, that he lay his cheek on the shoulder. Of Jesus presiding the last dinner is the flesh of God. No, it's the flesh of the God man. That therefore, a respect for the human flesh, not as social entities, but as uniquely enfleshed persons, was changed by the gospel. I know further that basing itself on New Testamentary statements. Christian always believed that the church itself is a body which comes into existence by Christian feeding on the sacrament, which was sacramentum meant that and baptism. By baptisms, we were immersed in this new body, as into water, and in the liturgy of Mass, we shared it by eating and capacitated through confirmation of their faith, they shared its spirit in that mouth-to-mouth kiss of which he spoke, conspiration. That what comes about there is a body, not in the abstract sense, but a body of true flesh and blood.
1: Through their belief in Christ's resurrection from the dead, Illich says, Christians asserted that daily embodied existence had been touched and transfigured by the eternal life of God, that the ruins of time, as the English poet William Blake said, build mansions in eternity. The Christian encounters God in the body. The object which my eyes seek, which I am invited
2: to seek in the face of everybody whom I encounter, is the face of the incarnate God. Therefore, the object of my bodily reaching out or communing has to do something with the resurrection of the body. The belief that even though you and I will be ashes pretty soon, our encounter, our bodily encounter, is outside of this world in which I am now, that the bodilyness of I, of me, and of you, and of us is a metaphysical quality, not an accident of the moment. My goodness, how can I speak about this mysterious new glory, thickness, phenomenological density of the body under the influence of Christianity, under the influence of the gospel, and the influence of the belief? that he who knocks at the door asking hospitality will be treated by me as Christ,
1: not as if he were, but as Christ. To the Christian, the stranger is Christ, Illich says, because the resurrection adds a new dimension to all bodies, not just the body of the risen Lord. But to understand how this Christian belief would eventually influence the experience of seeing, we need first to understand how the act of seeing was understood in the ancient world. This understanding was in many ways the opposite of our own. In the modern view, sights come into our eyes, conveyed there by rays of light. The ancients conceived vision as operating from the inside out, as outreaching by the projection of a visual ray out of the eye.
2: In classical antiquity,
1: the gaze was an
2: activity by which my flesh got married with the flesh or more precisely, the, the colors of the objects on which it grazed. Begay's was clearly described as a psychic proboscis or hand. It was called a psychopodium, tapodia of hands and feet. What one did when one opened one's eyes, when one placed one's gaze upon somebody, when one sought the reflection of Ivan in David Cayley's pupilla. Pupilla means exactly a little image of me which I find there, but seeing was an erection out of the pupilla as loving as other erections are. But Therefore, when I look at you, I caress you with my eyes."
1: This understanding of looking as an active, outgoing movement, rather than a passive reception, made seeing a moral subject. It's something I do and can therefore do in a good or bad way. Classical optics, or opsis as Illich says, using the Greek word, was not just about how vision occurs, but also about the proper use of the eyes.
2: As long as the gaze was conceived of as a human action, seeing was conceived of as something as willed, something as capable of being trained as speaking or as hearing. Obsess of the antiques of Euclid, beginning with Euclid, was an intellectual underpinning of the appropriate moral behavior. How to become doubtful when I see something? Is it a mirror image, a reflection, or do I really touch it? Do I get where I want to get, namely to the eyes of Cayley, or am I being distracted from it by the watery substance of the air between us, which deflects not only my attention, but actually my visual ray from what I want to search for in order to love it. Optics were the basis for the appropriate moral use of the eyes as searching, touching bodily parts. When you open any book of asceticism, any book which teaches you how to meditate, how to live in the presence of God, if you open these books, the custodia oculorum, the guarding of the eye, is always a major chapter. How the eye must be guarded from seeing wrong things, of seeing not interior vision, but dreams, apparitions, follies created by my wishes. The constant awareness that I can train my eyes as I can train my hands to repeat the right look onto the right object, which I have chosen as model, which I want to interiorize, just as the virtue of hospitality will be developed by practicing it until the frequent repetition transforms it into part of my stance, my inner habits, the belief in the Existence of a set of inner senses led among ascetics to a very careful attempt to train young people in the guard of their eyes. And guarding from what comes in became much more important in the second millennium. In the first millennium, it was mostly guarding from rushing on something which is out there,
1: touching it and bringing it home. How the guard of the eyes was eventually let down is the story Illich wants to tell tonight. It begins with the extraordinary New Testament assertion that Jesus is the image of the unseen God. The divine could be pictured in human form, and this gave the human image an unprecedented validity and power. Through this belief, something radically new was brought into both the Greek and Jewish worlds of the time. The Jews, following the commandments given to Moses, forbade images. You shall not make yourselves a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath, the children of Israel had been told. The Greeks, Illich says, permitted images, but through their philosophy had achieved a clear distinction between image and reality. In the couple of
2: centuries before Socrates, an attempt is made to replace the accent, which until then was on the image in the newly littered society, on the concept. It is love of which you want to speak in philosophy. It is water and not Neptune. It is war or struggle and not mass. With this shift from a concrete image to the valuing and even affective relationship to ideas, concepts, words, God, the ultimate God, the invisible God, becomes something which is thinkable even though it's not imaginable. It makes possible in classical antiquity the representation of gods in their statue, which everybody knows is not the God, and at the very same time deserves. The incense or other honors. Reflection on image, on the image itself and its essence, what it does, what distinguishes it from the real, is marvelously absent in classical philosophy. The new Jewish sect, which Christianity was at that time, enters therefore a world in which were rejected. Overcome, transcended by philosophers, the image is not a major problem. I insisted on Jewish sect, because the Jews bring in an attitude towards the image, which is of extraordinary radicality. Thou shalt not make yourself any image or likeness, because it could distract you from the adoration of the living God. The strict prohibition of image-making in the Jewish tradition was one of the major reasons for which the early followers, disciples of Jesus, had a hard time because they claimed that they had seen the Son of God, not the ultimate prophet who would again, through his words, incarnate God. But God, having become flesh, and spoke about Jesus as the image of the Father. And Christians, during the first few centuries, began to represent in mosaics, in frescoes, not only scenes of the New Testament, faces or figures from the Bible, but images. They represented those whom they worshipped. In clear contrast to the Jewish mandate, thou shalt not make yourself an image or likeness. By the fifth century, the Byzantine churches of the Mediterranean were filled with overwhelming mosaics, all of which figurative, all of which representing not just figures but persons. Dilased as you want, as
1: overdimensioned as you want, but images of persons. As Illich has just said, this profusion of images directly contradicted the command of the Hebrew Scriptures, whose authority the Christians continued to acknowledge. It also blurred the clear distinction in Greek philosophy between the visible and the invisible. God, for the Greek philosophers belonged to the immaterial realm of what Plato calls the ideas, and this first principle, by definition, could not be pictured. The resulting tension between these different conceptions of the divine led to sustained reflection in the early church on the status of icons, the Greek word for image. It also led to questions about their proper use. Was the increasing devotion to icons a proper part of Christian worship? or a resurgence of idolatry, the worship of idols? The question came to a head, Illich says, in the eighth century. The reflection on
2: iconology, on what images are, why it should be legitimate for Christians to violate the command of the Old Testament, thou shalt not make yourself an image, because Christ had appeared as the image of the Father, comes to an explosion, 726. 726, when is that? Well, for those who are not Byzantinologists or church historians, it's, at the, it's 50 years before or 40 years before Charlemagne is born. We're already in the West, into, well into the Middle Ages. It's a time when the Muslims become a major threat for the continued existence of Byzantium. Leo III, the emperor of Byzantium, won a battle in which he had stopped the iconoclastic, image-destroying Muslims. A revival of the Jewish command, with a vengeance, had come out of Arabia and had swept away the images from the churches with the progress of the Islamic armies from Egypt through Asia Minor into Greece. Right after the victory over these notoriously iconoclastic Muslims, the Emperor Azar went to the bronze gate of his palace, the main gate of his palace, and removed the image of Christ that was enthroned above it, and in place replaced it with a simple simple symbol, a cross. With this ceremony he started a fierce debate that raged sometimes with violence and war. For several generations. Its issue was can Christians bow and pray before an image? The icon Bowers, Iconoduloi, held that the cult of images was a legitimate and good form of piety, a devotion, a liturgy that has been customary since the beginnings of the church. A true and pretty bloody
1: War began about the gaze. The war ended in the year 787, 61 years after Leo had replaced the image of Christ with the naked cross. An ecumenical church council was convened to thrash out the issue at Nicaea, the same place where a much earlier council had formalized the doctrine of the Trinity in the so-called Nicene Creed. The council was carried by the views of John of Damascus, sometimes called the Damascene. He drew a distinction between the prototipos, the prototype, which is the model and source of the image, and the typos, the type, which is merely an instance or impression of the prototipos. The legitimacy of the image was preserved. At the close of that council, the icon of Christ
2: was placed again into the bronze door until, half a millennium later, the Muslims took it down. How was the issue resolved? John of Damascus reached the consensus of the great majority of the council fathers, the bishops from East and Western Mediterranean, with his doctrine, that an icon is a threshold. It is a threshold at which the artist prayerfully leaves some inkling of the glory which he has seen behind that threshold, a typos of the prototypos which is in heaven, that the icon is a window into eternity where risen Christ and his bodily assumed mother are already in the glory of the angels, and the prayerful person uses the created beauty, the beauty created by the artist in prayerful painting in order to step through the typos, devoutly to the prototypos if therefore he bows, he bows in front of the reflection of the real flesh of those who are represented there as incorporated already in the union with the body of Christ. He explains that by doing so, by engaging in this form of pious bodily expression of respect, he not only touches with his eyes beyond the threshold represented in the icon, but he brings back the emphasis, the mingling of the gaze of the faithful with the flesh of the resurrected and constructs church here on earth. This way of dealing with the icon, not as a picture, but as a threshold, has been kept alive by the characteristically different liturgy of the Eastern Church, Russian, Greek, Syriac, what have you. I had the chance of reading a report of some Soviet art historians under Stalin, finding a particularly beautiful and precious icon in a poor woman's hut and wanting to expropriate it for the museum, and trying to do so in the most gentle way possible, explained to her, imagine how many thousands of people will see this beauty in the museum. And the woman answering, an icon is not to be seen but to be prayed with.
0: You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. I'm Paul Kennedy, and tonight's program by David Cayley is called The Corruption of Christianity.
1: The condemnation of iconoclasm by the Council of Nicaea was not the final word in the iconoclastic controversy in the Eastern Empire. Twenty-seven years later, in 814, the iconoclasts regained power, and it was not until the year 843 that the legitimacy of icon veneration was established for good, a date still celebrated in the Eastern Church as the Feast of Orthodoxy. But what the Council of Nicaea did, in Illich's view, was to lay a firm intellectual foundation for the understanding of images. Conceiving the image as a threshold allowed a clear distinction to be made between the image in itself, the image as object, and the image as a gateway or access. It kept at the forefront the question of what the image gives access to, of the purpose for which it is used. In the Eastern Church, this teaching remained vital right down to the time of the poor woman who corrected the Soviet art historians. But in the Western church, Illich says, the doctrine of the Council of Nicaea soon became the justification for an entirely different view of images.
2: This highly sophisticated view of the image as a gateway, not for information, but for the bodily, physical reach into the beyond, never became the principal way of looking at holy pictures in the Christian West. In fact, precisely at that very same moment, another type of artistic activity really began in the West, the so-called Evangelium pauperum, the gospel of the non-readers, the role There are quite a few of them preserved, from which the Gospel is read from the pulpit in the tiny churches by the priest or deacon, while he reads the whole unfolds on the other side and shows to people those scenes. The Council of Nicaea, which established for the whole Christian church the doctrine of the legitimacy of icons. By the Western Church was immediately used as a legitimacy of making teaching devices in order to make preaching easier, better, and longer lasting by illustrating the sermon. Through the transition of the doctrine, for me, beautiful and convincing, I must say, of John Damascenus, by which the picture. The image acquired legitimacy within the cult by bringing it back to the West and making the image a teaching device here. Western pictures are painted as representations of scenes, not especially after the 13th century, not as thresholds inviting you as little shadows into the glory behind them the basis was laid on which our world of objectivity
1: is built. The Evangelium pauperum, the gospel of the poor, in Illich's view, was a sign of the radically different ways in which the doctrine of the Council of Nicaea would be interpreted in the Eastern and Western churches. The gospel scenes that unrolled before the congregation while the word was read from the other side of the scroll were an early example of the type of representational painting that would soon become a staple in the West. The point of this new type of painting was to instruct, impress, and entertain the spectator, not to conduct his gaze into the beyond. The art of representation, as it advanced, drew attention more and more to the object itself absorbing and holding the viewer's gaze in the luxury and glamour of the painting's sensuous presence. This is an instance of what Illich calls the corruption of Christianity. Without belief in Christ's resurrection, there could never have been a doctrine like that of John of Damascus, with its claim that the prayerful gaze can mingle with Christ's flesh in eternity. But at the same time, he says, this doctrine opened the way to a new intoxication with earthly images. The
2: doctrine of the Council of Nicaea served to remove the influence of the Jewish and later Muslim. Prohibition Look at images in order not to be turned away from the real thing. To look at portraits, 14th century, a way of not having to face the other person creating the possibility of seeing the other person in the image, the real person, in remembrance of the portrait. It served for a march, a victorious march of the image over the centuries in increasingly secularized form, and it helped. For me, it became essential in the history of what we
1: call objectivity. Objectivity, Illich believes, is the condition of a world that can be pictured, a world in which pictures tell us what things are really like. But for this world to come into being, something more was necessary than just the legitimation of images. There also had to be a change in the scientific account of how seeing occurs. Illich spoke earlier about the classical science of optics, in which an outgoing visual ray grasped the world. The modern theory holds that the eye is a camera in which a lens focuses incoming light on the sensitive screen of the retina. And this scientific theory, Illich says, was a crucial and necessary underpinning for the idea that the things of the world can be represented. The passage
2: from the outreach of the gaze to the eye conceived as camera obscura is a precondition for the possibility of conceiving of the image, of the painting, as a teaching device about reality. Because you can pretend to create a facsimile in modern optics, in the science of light, by which the artist, or he who commands the artist, transmits doxa and dogma, knowledge, to you through your eye. You cannot use a facsimile as a substitute for reality when the gaze is outreaching. The possibility of making the painting representational is deeply tied to a transition from seeing as a bodily activity, a virtuous activity, to seeing as at least partially passive incorporation.
1: The passive eye, Illich claims, could be more easily instructed and informed. It digests vision, while the outreaching eye, the psychic hand of the first millennium, discovers things by touching and fingering them. The theory underlying this modern digestive eye was firmly established by the beginning of the 17th century. Kepler had given modern scientific optics its first formulation, and modern optical devices like Galileo's telescope had already begun to hint at realities outside the range of the unaided eye. During this modern period, Illich distinguishes two distinct stages in the history of the gaze. The first stage in how things were pictured was marked by the technique of perspective, in which things were observed from a fixed standpoint as if through one eye. In this stage, a painter or draftsman still invited the viewer to see what he saw, In the second stage, which extends to our own time, natural perspective was abandoned, and things intended to be seen were placed in what Illich calls virtual or non-local space. In the drawings of anatomists, for example, at the beginning of the 19th century, distance was eliminated, and the interior of the body was visualized in a sort of architecturally enhanced close-up that no eye could ever actually see. In both these stages, the gaze is trained on a world that is increasingly mapped, measured, and diagrammed. We see not as Aristotle supposed because of the natural fit between the eye and its objects, but because our tools of observation and techniques of representation remove the veil of mere appearance and show us what is really there. One of the pioneers in this scientific re-education of the eye, Illich says, was Leonardo da Vinci.
2: Leonardo da Vinci, around 152, 153, says, when he dissects the bodies of hanged men whom he purchased from the executioner to his pupils, you must draw everything you see in a human body. Because in the flesh, the eye can't see anything. Only when you have drawn it and drawn it again and again will you slowly understand what you are speaking about. From that almost foreshadowing of the ideas of the 17th century in the late 15th and early 16th, we move pretty quickly to the idea that the best way, I'm still staying in the example of anatomy, of writing about the body is to have a draftsman draft it as he sees it according to the rules of monocular, fixed standpoint, perspectival representation, and then have your text discussing about the feature in the image marked with an A, a B, or a C. Modern science began basically with the interpretation of designs. In many areas of Europe, you couldn't get the degree at the university, much less become a state employee, if you didn't pass an exam in drawing, because reports home, reports to your chief, reports to the king, had to be illustrated to be credible. But this was always an illustration which still placed the designer into the picture even if invisibly through the rules of perspective. Then in the 19th century we have a completely new way of imagining the image. The images represent what really is out there, not what the anatomists or the geographers, draughtsmen sees. In scientific treatises we demand for perspectival representation, perspectival objectivity is abandoned, and objects are represented as measured, as mapped, as seen in an architectural drawing in which the gaze is assumed always to be perpendicular to the object represented. The draftsman creates a virtual space into which he places things as we are and not as we are seen by him. And the reader is asked to look at an object, a cut through a brain, a baby, a muscle, in a space into which he never could reach.
1: What Illich means by a virtual space might become clearer If you think, for example, of the anatomical drawings that still appear in most biology textbooks, you begin with an image of the skeletal and muscular structure of the body, and then impose a series of transparencies which add the organs, the nervous system, the circulatory system, and so forth. The result is not something you could ever see, nor is it pictured as existing in a space you could ever inhabit. The bloody mess that Leonardo actually saw when he peered into the bellies of his cadavers has been clarified, sorted into systems, and transposed into the idealized context in which modern persons are taught to recognize their bodies. And this is only the beginning of what Illich means by virtual or non-local space. Today, such spaces are everywhere. The Internet is a vast simultaneous nowhere in which no one actually knows where anything is. Computer-generated images shred the distinction between the imaginary and the real. Expectant parents bond with ultrasound scans of their unborn children. We now habitually see and experience things, Illich says, in spaces that are beyond any threshold we could ever pass. What impresses me so much is
2: the speed with which during the second part of my life of seventy years, virtual spaces, images, and other objects presented in virtual spaces have become generalized. There are quite a few serious thinkers now who claim that among the most important, profound changes of the last twenty-five years is the ubiquity of virtual spaces in which, from which we are asked to derive our knowledge. Perhaps now you get an inkling why I insisted on in the icon. The icon was conceived as a threshold into a super reality in which only faith could lead. The virtual space asks you to look into is nowhere in which nobody Could live. I want to show the contrast between the first and most sophisticated form of iconology of the Damascenes, which sees in what he calls icon a shadow from the beyond, which leads into eternity, and today's virtual space, which has characteristics in which one couldn't reach or smell or step. Or touch, in which most of the things which we take for granted are shown to us, and those which we know are better explained to us, with the idea that only if you have seen it
1: on television, it's believable in reality. Illich wants to show the contrast, he says, between the virtual world and the threshold at which the believer's eyes were conducted into eternity. The virtual space, as he said elsewhere, is a utopia, a word coined by Thomas More in the 16th century from the Greek words for no place. It is a threshold with no beyond. There is no there there, as Gertrude Stein once said about the United States. This no place, Illich supposes, is the terminus of the triumphant march of the image that was made possible by the Council of Nicaea's validation of devotion to icons. This is as far as he has taken his argument, but based on what he has said, one could go further and also point to the uncanny resemblance between the glory that shone through the icon and the cascade of virtual beings that pour through the video screen. The icon leads into a super-reality, and so in a sense does the screen by showing us what the natural eye could never see. The icon promises a state of blessedness, and so also the screen, by showing us the perfected world pictured in so much advertising and entertainment. The icon finally helps to build the body of the church, while interconnected screens now fill many heads with visions of a new sort of superorganism, pulsing with electronic communications. Illich, as I've said, hasn't gone this far, and yet it seems consonant with his thesis about the corruption of Christianity, to wonder whether the virtual world is not in its timelessness and placelessness, a kind of counterfeit eternity, something that could never have been without the Christian original. For Illich, what is terrible about the enchantment which the image has worked on our world is the shadow it throws on people's face-to-face encounters. Christianity overcame the old Jewish proscription of images and the old Greek hesitancy before the colored shadows of the visible world in order to celebrate the new reality of God's appearance in the flesh. But this new freedom to see the divine also became a license for the avalanche of images that followed, and this has left modern people uniquely exposed to illusion and entrancement because the old reservations about the image have been overcome and discarded. In consequence, Illich says, the power of images now threatens to deprive us of the insight that comes only from seeing ourselves in the eyes of others. The Old Testamentary and Islamic still alive
2: proscription of the image has, as far as I can understand it out of the texts, the major tasks of not taking your face as an image, not identifying it, as you said, with your painting or photograph or my internal imagination about you but to remain constantly vulnerable by what looking at you in the flesh will reveal to me about myself, that is, tear away illusions, fancies, consolations, which make it possible at this moment to live with myself. The proscription of the image is at the very same time an invitation to be ruthless against myself in seeking myself in what I find through your eyes. Imagery, particularly imagery of the human face, and even more so imagery which is mechanical like photography, interferes with that ultimately undescribable gaze which reaches out on several levels simultaneously. And for the believer, always also into the beyond, searching eternity, ultimate truth, which is a living body behind the threshold of the image. With the gaze conceived as that of the camcorder, with the ability to speak about the satellite view of the world as a view with the habituation. To see in front of my eyes things which by their very nature are not in the order of the visible. Perhaps because as long as they are living, they are below the skin, as the movements of my heart. Perhaps because they are figments like the visual representation of quantitative data, which developed magnificently during the last hundred and fifty years. Perhaps because It is a so-called genome, which implies control and command. With this habituation, increasingly we lose the everyday habit of placing our gaze on that which falls under our
1: eyes. This habit, Illich holds, can only be recovered by restoring what he earlier called the guard of the eyes, The idea is somewhat foreign to contemporary sensibilities, which run more to the cynical and the blasé, answering all occasions with a precociously wised up, so what? But it is Illich's view that the eye requires training and protection now as never before. Virtuous seeing is still possible, he says in conclusion to tonight's program but it depends on a recovery of the awareness that seeing what is not there can impair our ability to see what is. Antique
2: optics is concerned with preparing a virtuous way of seeing and making you aware of the pitfalls into which your visual ray can fall. In the same way, I think, that contemporary optics, rational Disciplined, methodical study of the exercise, the human act of gazing ought to make me aware of what I bring back into everyday meeting with people from establishing the habit of looking at these figments into whose company I'm constantly being invited by the producers of these non-entities of extraordinary attractiveness. I said attractiveness, yes. But since I know where I stand, I say of an extraordinary seductive power.
0: On Ideas tonight, you've listened to Part 3 of The Corruption of Christianity, Ivan Illich on Gospel, Church, and Society. The series continues tomorrow night with a program about the loss of the sense of proportion in the contemporary world. Tonight's program was produced and presented by David Cayley with the assistance of Richard Handler. Technical operations and studio direction were by Dave Field, associate producer... Catherine Hughes You can order a printed transcript of this series for $25 and a set of 5 audio cassettes for 39.95. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W 1E6 or by email to ideas@toronto.cbc. You can also call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. The number once again is area code 416-205-7367. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Please stay tuned now to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news followed by the Arts Today and Between the Covers.